This is BBC Radio 3 on 90-93 FM and on digital radio. It's just after two o'clock now and time for Discovering Music. This week, the third programme in a series first broadcast in 1998, presented by Leonard Slatkin. On our first two programs, I talked about two building blocks in music, rhythm and melody. Today we're adding the third, harmony. Deep in December, it's nice to remember, although you know the snow. Harmony. Things sounding together. At the end of today's program, we're going to perform Respighi's Pines of Rome and take it apart a bit to show you how harmony affects the piece in both simplistic ways and very complex ones. Actually, harmony is the most recent of all the building blocks. Melody and rhythm certainly came before. There are, of course, many different kinds of harmonies. Here we're going to concentrate on classical Western music. After all, it's the one I think we know best. The sounding together of separate notes creates chords. Having dealt with scales in the last program, we find that chords are created just by using selected notes from the scale and sounding them together. There used to be an easy way we all knew this in school, 
anything that was in a major harmony sounded like this. Happy. And if it was in a minor key, it sounded like this. Subdued and sad. Surprisingly, much harmony just relies on those two basic principles, major versus minor. But the other important thing to know, and to listen for, is how the harmonies impact on the melodies. Structures of music are built around these principles. For instance, the symphony usually has to deal with two primary elements, a tonic chord or home key, and its dominant, the one that's five notes higher. It's rather easy to illustrate. It's a simple progression heard in virtually all music that follows symphonic structure in general. I thought we might actually look at a symphony and see how one composer operates going from one set of keys to another. The work is the Eroica Symphony, the third of Beethoven, a lengthy and very complex work. But in certain ways, it can be reduced to very simple patterns. The piece is in the key of E-flat. That's its home key. The dominant key, the one that it's going to lead back and forth from, is B-flat. Keeping that in mind, let's see how Beethoven uses these harmonies. He must begin, as tradition dictated, with the home key. Tradition also dictates that the second theme, something that happens in virtually all symphonic structures, must be in the dominant key. We've had the home key, and now we're going to move to that dominant B-flat. After this, there's a section that's known as the development, the portion of the symphony where the composer can use his or her sense of imagination, not that they haven't used it before. Beethoven begins his development in a very unrelated key, G major. We heard E-flat at the beginning, B-flat as the second theme, and now we're going to move to this key. Beethoven was never content to be ordinary. He introduces something quite unusual in the Third Symphony at this point, a third theme. Here he moves away from the major elements and the major keys he's been dealing with. He moves to an extremely unrelated key, in this case E minor. Remember, the symphony started this way in E flat. And E minor is this. Quite bold for the time. All symphonies of that period had to return to the home key for its recapitulation. Beethoven here is no exception. In fact, he virtually duplicates the entire beginning. Then he proceeds to go into the redevelopment, basically taking the material and working it again. It's a second development section. This time, it's in the slightly unrelated key of C major. 
Beethoven returns to the third theme once again, but this time in the key of F minor. And finally, the coda, the final section of the movement. In this case, again, composers were obviously going to return to the home base, the same way the piece began. In Beethoven's case, though, he spends over a minute just alternating between two chords, the home key of E-flat and the dominant key of B-flat. To simplify, in a piece that really shouldn't be simplified, essentially the main points that Beethoven takes us through in harmonies work like this. These triads, basically three notes of consonants, form the basis of the majority of Western music but we have to deal with dissonance as well as consonance. So what's dissonance? Well, maybe not that exaggerated. Every era has had its harmonic pioneers. Gesualdo and Scarlatti in the 17th century, for example, introduced chords that shocked their contemporaries, much in the same way that more recent composers have shocked our ears. Imagine if you were living in the 17th century and you'd been used to hearing this. And all of a sudden, from the same composer, Gesualdo, you heard this. if a harpsichord player sat down and played this Scarlatti sonata. And then launched into this.
Just as composers tried to expand the idea of melodic thought, obviously harmonic thought had to expand as well. As the centuries progressed, harmonies became more and more complex, dissonances more involved. The relationship with those consonances to the dissonances were more out of balance as it ever had been. However, there was one very important turning point in the middle of the last century, and that was the idea that the whole feeling of the home base, the keys, could disappear. I'm going to play a melody for you without any harmony. It's virtually impossible, unless you know this piece, and many of you will, to guess what the harmonies might be. I suppose we could be simplistic and do something like this. But actually what happens is this. At the beginning of Tristan and Isolde, Richard Wagner began to break down the barriers of keys, and more and more composers began to find other ways to break down those barriers. For instance, Debussy, Schoenberg, and Stravinsky, each reacting in a different way, found methods to try to connect the past, but also at the same time to look to the future. Debussy created a world of whole-tone magic. In the last program, we talked about the idea of his scale system, which was devised from whole tones rather than going by steps. With holes and halves between, Debussy's scale just went with whole steps between each one. Creating an exotic world further amplified when he applied this to harmonic process as well. Debussy's prelude, Briar. Igor Stravinsky tried something different in the mid-1920s. He took older music and refashioned it harmonically so it matched certain conventions of the 20th century. Here's the piece that Stravinsky based his version on. It's by a composer named Gallo, who actually Stravinsky thought was Pergolesi at the time. Then with her Stravinsky's setting of the same music, but done harmonically, in Stravinsky's distinctive language.
the trio sonata in G of Gallo, and Stravinsky's Pulcinella. Arnold Schoenberg, who created a major revolution in devising a whole new system of listening to melodies, tried very hard to keep, in his early years at least, to the Wagnerian principles. But this work, Verklete Nacht, was to be the last in this style. Schoenberg went on to a much more severe and highly original form of composition. An excerpt from Schoenberg's Variations, Opus 31. Schoenberg tried to remove all of the traditional listener props. There's no traditional harmony, melody is quite changed, and you don't feel a sense of rhythm, although, of course, all three are there in a different way. As we've come to the end of this century, more and more composers have returned to certain values from the past. They've resurrected them. We hear lots of terms like neoclassicism, neo-impressionism, neo-romanticism. Harmonies have returned in many cases to more traditional values. But what happens if a recognizable work is taken and reharmonized in such a way that perhaps you don't recognize it? Yes, I left the tune out, but sometimes harmonies can tell us what the tune is going to be. It was hard to tell what that was. Well, here it is. Hope you're surprised. These days, it's harder to separate the worlds of the popular culture and the concert culture. It's always been that composers have been going from one field to the other. Crossover is nothing new. But now it means we will probably never return exactly to the secure harmonic structures of the time of Mozart and Haydn. But we probably won't see so many of the experiments that we saw in the 50s and 60s in classical music. Here are some examples of composers writing today who've returned to some traditional harmonic values, but at the same time found an important individual face and voice. The American John Adams, in his work Harmonilera, which basically means teaching of harmony, is very clear in his harmonic language.
The Estonian Ervo Pert chooses very long, sustained and simple harmonic structures. And in a way, Samuel Barber chooses the world of Brahms, but very much in a 20th century manner. Having listened to fragments from more current works, let's turn to something a bit earlier. In 1924, the Italian composer Ottorino Respighi began a triptych, three works based on elements of Roman life, Roman festivals, the fountains of Rome, and certainly the most famous, the Pines of Rome, written first. Usually, when we think of Pines of Rome, we think about the orchestral textures and colors. It's a great showpiece, colorful, full of great sounds and innovative devices. But harmonically, the work turns out to be just as interesting, and I thought we'd hear the whole piece, but before we do that, examine parts of it that may cause you to listen to it in a different way. Having discussed various aspects of harmony over the course of this program, we need to examine in this work how Respighi starts. Actually, what he does, for the very first note of the piece, is not create any harmony at all. He creates a static sound. If we remove all the motion from the beginning of the work, this is what we hear. But Respighi really doesn't start that way. He sets everybody moving on those notes, and by moving, the harmony is created. Respighi is not very often thought of as being a dissonant composer. He seems in many cases out of touch with the harmonic consequences of his own era. And yet that's not entirely true. Let's take this one brief passage in the first section. First listen to the trumpets, all alone, playing a simple chord. And now a slightly more dissonant chordal effect between the horns and the strings. What Respighi does then is to put the two chordal effects together, and this creates something called polytonality, basically several chords sounding at the same time. 
This device, which was invented by Debussy and furthered by Stravinsky, was to become crucial to music in the 20th century. But Respighi had other plans as well. In the second section of the work, he was to turn to something much older, quite contrary to the first part. In fact, it's something we talked about in the last program, organum, the idea of continual lines with virtually no harmony going on underneath them. This is how Respighi represents it. He also uses plain song, basically an offshoot of Gregorian chant. By putting these two single melodic lines together, Respighi actually creates a harmonic structure out of two essentially non-harmonic forms. Respighi was quite interested in creating atmospheric chords and harmonies. This one that begins the third section is heard in the strings, with one voice gradually coming in after another. This chord is given motion, however, by the piano solo which plays a cadenza-like figure. Actually, there are two separate chord groups going on there, but by depressing the pedal on the right side of the piano, the pianist is able to blur these two chords, making them seem as one. A unique device appears harmonically at the end of this third section. It's important for you to know that when an orchestra tunes at the beginning of a concert, all the string instruments play on what are called the open strings. They don't depress their fingers on the instrument itself. So in this case, the lowest note heard in the cellos, for instance, is a C natural, which sounds like this. Just as he did at the beginning of this particular section, Respighi piles one note on after the other, until it ends in the violins. If we keep the C natural in the cellos, the one we just heard, the chord sounds like this. Now that's a chord of almost Schoenbergian importance. But that's not what you hear in the concert. Here's a little secret. You don't really hear it in performance, but we're going to let you hear it now. A few of the cellos are asked by Respighi to actually tune the C natural down one half tone, so they go down to a B natural. This isn't going to be nice, but this is what it sounds like when they do it by themselves.
Now, when we play the same chord that we heard a few moments ago, with a B natural on the bottom instead of the C, well, what was a highly dissonant chord becomes quite consonant. When you listen to the whole work in a moment, keep that in mind. And when you go to a performance, look at the back stand of the cellos. You'll see a few of the players turn the pegs on the instrument down. Most people don't pay any attention to it, but it really is quite interesting. It also reminds us that the concert is a visual experience as well as one just for listening. In the final portion of the Pines of Rome, the March to the Appian Way, we hear the opening march figure played by the piano and lower strings. No real harmony there. The horns provide that, and when they're isolated from the march figure, they sound, well, quite consonant. To add an air of mystery, something quite ominous, Respighi provides the violins with a highly unusual dissonance. It's just two notes. They seem to start harshly, but then resolve. When we put these three elements together, we have one of the most original and highly evocative events in music. Toward the end of the piece, there's a moment when the harmonies would appear to take over. Almost all of the instruments in the orchestra are doing nothing but providing a harmonic background. Over this harmonic structure, there's a march tune played by the trombones. Surprisingly, that's only two or three players. You'd think that the other 95 members of the orchestra could at least drown out the two or three trombones. It's not so. Those few can actually obscure the basic harmonic structure at this point. Now, with the BBC Philharmonic, let's hear the work complete. Try to concentrate on these harmonic aspects of the work rather than the purely melodic, rhythmic, and colorful ones. Respighi's Pines of Rome.
The Pines of Rome by Ottolino Respighi. The BBC Philharmonic played and assisted in the Beethoven excerpts we heard earlier. You know, during the course of this program, I've been thinking you really can't divorce tone color from harmony, rhythm, and melody. So next time, let's deal with tone color, one of the main building blocks of music. And until then, keep listening. <laughs>